Good morning. Thank you very much, Chris, for leading us. And it's great to be back together again. I am very conscious that God's been at work in our presence already. And what a privilege it is to be together. Chris has mentioned that a few times. This morning, in a few minutes, we're going to be looking at <coughs> Psalm 27. Chris and I hadn't discussed what I was going to be looking at, but it is exciting when you sense that God is at work preparing us to hear his word and respond to it. And in some ways, I would love to read the psalm and go back and sing those songs again because they do help us think about the meaning of that psalm. But I do have a few other things to say. And this morning, I'd like to think together with you about where we get confidence. I've heard many people say that this has been one of the worst summers they can remember for trouble around the world, especially as Islamic extremists have become more brutal and blatant in their fury against Christians. And you can look at the insert in Buzzline to see example after example of places where Christians are under pressure and churches are being persecuted, and people are running for their lives. Psalm 27 is a psalm of worship in a time of trouble, of difficulty and beauty, of human evil and divine mercy. And because of its honesty about life in this fallen world, it speaks into the life of every Christian. And it shows what worship looks like when trouble is on the rise. So whether we're thinking about trouble in that global sense or whether it's something more particular to our situation, my prayer is that as we read this psalm, we'll deepen our confidence in all of life's circumstances and grow in the art of waiting on the Lord. So turn with me to Psalm 27. It's in page 557 in the Pew Bibles. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. 
be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. O God, my Savior, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And this is God's word. There are four questions that are likely to be on our lips when trouble rises. And this isn't a comprehensive look at Psalm 27, but there are four questions that are answered in this psalm, and they are, who do you fear? What's your one thing? Where do you run to? And who are you waiting for? And hopefully they'll make sense as we think about David's confidence and where he placed it. Fear is a healthy emotion. Fear of drowning or being run over makes us careful when we're swimming or crossing the road. Fear of failing an important exam motivates us to work hard and tunes our responses for that day that's looming. And a complete lack of fear, such as a child who has no fear of fire, can be dangerous. But there can also be a kind of fear that cripples us. It may be a fixation, something completely irrational, like all men have beards are evil. Sorry, if you decided to grow a beard over the summer. Or uh, traveling by plane means I probably won't reach my destination. One UK tourist this summer apparently had a rather expensive holiday when she flew to Tunisia and refused to get on the return flight because she was gripped by fear. According to this week's newspaper, she stayed an extra three weeks. It cost her £5,000 more. And she eventually made it home when her mother flew to Tunisia and accompanied her by ferry and Eurotunnel back to the UK. But what is it that allows David to write a psalm like this? With its opening line about no fear. Enemies of one kind or another have been around David from the beginning. You will know that he encountered wild wild animals. You know the story of him arriving in the Israelite camp as Goliath was causing fear to shiver through the ranks of the soldiers. He was chased by Saul who wanted him killed. And some locate this psalm at a time when he was ruler And when what was once persecution had now turned into war. In verse 3 he says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. This isn't the 
kind of power of positive thinking that American sportswear designers say we should be full of and do crazy things on skateboards. This is a settled confidence, but where does it come from? I think one of the lessons of this psalm is that trust is not just an entry requirement for a Christian that gets left behind as you progress in the Christian life. It's followed by more demanding changes. And the first half of the psalm is buoyant and upbeat, and David rejoices at all of that confidence that he has as he thinks about the way in which God has led him. But then it seems the second half of the psalm becomes threatening as more difficulties encroach around him. But what affects him more than any enemy is the presence of the Lord as his light and his salvation, the stronghold of his life. All sorts of crazy things happen to him, from flesh-eating assailants to security threats against the whole nation. But his confidence rests on God who is looking after him. That knowledge that nothing compares to his security of David's body and soul. What about our security systems? There's a variety of security systems we can look at in our lives. We thought we were well prepared for our holiday this summer with our travel insurance, our breakdown cover, our confidence to head into the Alps with our tent and bicycles. I'll not give you the full story. I know some of you have had it from Amy. But we were aware of how vulnerable we were, no matter how many policies we had or what we thought we knew about the mountains. This week, I've been reciting verse 1 of this psalm as I've woken up. And it's like an anchor that seems to prove itself as storms increase. And I suggest it, maybe this week of returning to work and school and challenges, to take that first verse of Psalm 27 and recite it as you wake up in the morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? As we head into another church here, who will you fear? Well, David's away. You might fear that many of the preachers we have will not understand what we need. How will we cope if lots more people arrive in this building and uh, we don't have room to manage in our present facilities? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or maybe personal threats have been reaching a point where you wonder how you will survive at work, at home, in my studies, financially. Fear is a good, healthy emotion, and sometimes it can motivate and inspire change. But above all, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In our hearts, we know that the typical places that we look for for security really offer very little of what we truly seek. We'll only know the rest and security that we seek when we embrace the incredible reality that we are children of God.
And if you're God's child, then you are the object of his love. The one who rules everything. There's no situation, no location, no relationship where he's not present. There is nothing that is outside of his control. And it's impossible for what he desires and has chosen and planned not to come into being. He's perfect in every way. He's the beginning and the center of everything that's good and wise and loving and true. And he never forgets. (coughs) Ephesians chapter 1 says that he exercises this rule, but why does he do it? Why is he in control of all things? God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You're not secure because you have control or understanding. You are secure even if you're weak and imperfect and short-sighted. And that's for one reason, and it is that God is your father. He will never leave your side. He will never fail to provide. And he has the power to do it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What's your one thing? David makes a remarkable statement in this psalm. It may be one that slips into our songs. You're all I want, all I ever need. But here is a man under attack. And his one thing is not victory or vindication or power or safety or control. He wants more than anything to be in God's house taking in the grandeur of the beauty of the Lord. And we might sing that kind of song, but this is surely for the kind of people who are deeply devout and somehow detached from the present realities of the world around them. Rich Mullins wrote a song with these words. Everybody I know says there's just one thing And what they really mean is that they need just one thing more. You can tell why this isn't a congregational hymn. It's hard to say, never mind sing. But there are great words. Everybody seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you. Still, I want to love and serve you more and more. You're my one thing. And that's how we're made. We're made to worship. And we are worshippers as we are always living for something, that thing that's always laying claim to the affection and control of our hearts. There's something that we look to for identity, for meaning and for purpose. And the Bible says there's really only two choices that we have before us in Romans chapter 1 verse 25. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And served created things rather than the creator who is 
forever praised. Either you are living in pursuit of the creation or you're living in pursuit of the creator. Those are the choices. You're looking for satisfaction and meaning in the physical created world around you or finding it in the Lord. Does that sound so spiritual as to be impractical? Well, what is the one thing that would change my life? What's my heart craving? What is that one thing that you would struggle to live without? Because whatever it is, that one thing controls your heart. Whatever controls your heart directs your words and your choices and your actions. So here is my one thing test. It's not an exam. But it is an opportunity to ask ourselves, what is controlling us? What's driving us? We say to ourselves, life has meaning and I have worth. If only I have blank in my life. And what is that blank? As Rich Mullins says, the list is virtually endless. It's one thing more. But maybe it is something like this. And here's a small selection to help you think. Maybe it's power. I have worth when I have power and influence over others. Or if I'm loved and respected by him or by her. Or if only I had that particular look or image. Or if there's somebody there to keep me safe. Or perhaps the opposite. If I'm free of any responsibility to answer or care for anybody. Or maybe if a professional group or a social group let me into their circle, I'm included. That's what I need. Or if I'm recognized for all of my accomplishments, I can do it. Or if my children or my parents are happy and happy with me, that would be enough. Or if people need me. Or maybe even this. If I'm hurting or having a problem, then I'm worthy of love or free from guilt. And in every situation and relationship, there is this one thing struggle being fought over your heart and mind. Here's a <clears throat> very trivial example. It won't work for you, but maybe it just shows how it works. <clears throat> I will never ra- win a major bike race. Surprise, I know. <clears throat> but if people are surprised that I could climb a hill as quickly as somebody half my age, then surely that's worth something. So maybe I should follow my dream and train a bit more or buy that new bike or uh, work a bit harder. And before long, I'm working out what people would say when I've got that one thing. And uh, in reality, my heart is chasing after that dream, trivial as it may be, but it could be hindered by everyday life like somebody making off with my bike in France and suddenly that dream becomes a crisis and I I said I wouldn't go back into my holiday story but 
But is it still so impractical, this one thing issue? You and I are only safe when the Lord really is the one thing that commands our hearts and controls our actions. And practically, where does this happen? Well, David in this psalm uses at least five metaphors to picture the place where this does happen. A place of encounter with God where he says, this one thing I'm asking that I might be in your house, in his temple, in his dwelling, in the shelter of his sacred tent set upon a rock. Where is God's temple? Chris began our service by saying we can worship God anywhere, but we have the privilege and opportunity of coming to worship together in this place. In the variety of David's experience, it's far wider than one place in Jerusalem. He could meet God anywhere. But 2 Corinthians 6 says we are the temple of the living God. And while we can enjoy God's presence anywhere, this gathering is the place where we can gaze upon his beauty and listen to his voice and praise him for the way that he's taking first place in the lives of each other around us. Think about it this way. I could bump into my GP down the street or in Tesco's and he'd be my doctor. But it's in his surgery that he meets me as his doctor, as my doctor. And we can meet God anywhere, but there is something different about being with his people, which is the reason why Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together, because it's here that we meet God in a way that helps us see his glory and worship his greatness. Yes, we live every day in God's presence and we know him at every moment, but we come together this morning as, how does it? described in Ephesians, living stones being built together into a holy temple where God dwells by his spirit. There's a shift halfway through this psalm, verse 7 through to 12. Delight gives way to alarm. Trouble is brewing. And the question is, where do you turn to? Where do you run to? What's been David's experience? There's false witnesses rising against him. There are threats of violence. There's a need for very clear guidance about following the right path. There's even an indication that family relationships are not very reliable. And I'm not going to answer what is this about his mother and father forsaking him. But there's clearly stuff going on that he can relate to. And the question is, where do you run when things go wrong? I find my instinct is to want to talk to family, want to talk to a wise friend. I want to talk to somebody who can guide me. And David turns to God. It's been his experience that when satisfaction gives way to stress, when that whole experience of euphoria enjoying God gives way to panic then it's time to cry for help and he talks to himself in verse 8 do you ever talk to yourself I hope so 
People do say it's the first sign of madness, not according to Psalm 8 and not according to Paul Tripp, who said, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You're in an unending conversation with yourself, interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what's going on inside of you and around you. And so the example of David is to tell yourself to run towards God in these moments when you feel like running away from him. And what happens? In a moment, we are going to hear about this experience of crying out to God when things go bad. Sometimes trouble goes away. Sometimes it remains exactly what it was and we find new courage and strength to face it. Sometimes nothing changes. And like David, we're thrown back on the great facts about God that we've known all along. And maybe that was the purpose that God intended for us. But the confidence of the first half of this psalm hasn't fallen apart. For in the final few verses, there is this expectation that God's goodness is to be experienced. And the psalm ends with that prayer that David has expressed in absolute confidence again. That God is in control. He is the one to wait for. He's the one who is the one our hearts are longing for. I don't think this last part of the psalm needs much explanation, but I'd like to end by inviting you to think about perhaps the anxieties that have crept into your thoughts. Maybe like David, real threats to life, security, health, or family struggle. Maybe the realization that your one thing is not what it should be. Maybe doubts that God is not listening. I've asked Heather Law if she's here. Would she share just in a few minutes something of her experience of this psalm? And many of you will know that we've been receiving updates from Heather about her brother Stuart. And she always quoted the last two verses of Psalm 27. So I asked Heather, would she come and tell us a bit about what this psalm means? Thank you, Heather. And after this, we're going to join together in worshipping. I've written most of this down in case I lose track. Uh, 30th of January 2013. I came out out of the cinema watching Les Mis (laughs) to a call to tell me that my brother had cancer. I just wept in front of my friend Rosie. Instead of going home, I went home to my parents' house and I continued to weep. That night I wept, the next day I wept. I was devastated to see my parents and their heartbrokenness over the news that their son, um, their baby son, really, was dying. Stuart was 41 when he was diagnosed with cancer in his colon um, that had spread into his liver Um, and the surrounding lymph nodes. The consultant, as he spoke to Stuart about his um, illness, had said that they wished they had found his illness earlier. 
Stuart Ever, the practical person, had turned around and asked the consultant could he help him fill in his life insurance policy. Stuart believed he was going to die and die soon. And the logic of his diagnosis would have said the same. But he talks of an overwhelming sense of peace that he was going to spend his eternity with Jesus Christ. But his one earthly concern was his wife Elizabeth, his then 14-year-old Samuel, and his nine-year-old daughter Hannah. As I wrote an email out to tell people about the news, this verse became my standard. It became the thing that I broadened my stance and decided to believe in. Because as you write that news, you feel that you're in a war and you have to counteract that. I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, have courage and wait. It was part of a prayer from the Northumbrian community I had learned and recited the previous Lent. And it was such a powerful prayer in my mind when I was writing these emails and continued to write through Stuart's treatment. It gave me courage to believe that God is good, despite what happens in our lives. It is a truth of who God is. Stuart's diagnosis was an overwhelming one. And this, this, di this, diagnosis, this verse helped me to sleep at night and gave me peace to sleep at night. It was a fight in my mind and those of us who of us in the family to fight against the logic of what the, the result of this diagnosis meant, but also the divine promise that is in this verse. To see God's goodness, we usually see it in eternal terms, but I believe that we would see it and hope to see it in the present day life that we live in today, because that's what the verse says. It was a challenge to see my parents in such distress, to go over to England with my parents and see my brother in a shrunken frame. He's a big guy. He's bigger than me. Uh, when I saw my sister-in-law exhausted from lack of sleep and stress and wondering what was going to happen to her and her family, when I saw them as parents having to tell their children, no matter the outcome of their illness, that Jesus actually still loved them as children, and when I saw and heard about Samuel and Hannah hiding under the, the cupboard in the stairs in the church, away from sympathetic eyes and tearful adults, that again hurt and was a challenge to see that happening to my niece and nephew. It was a wait. Stuart's uh, liver was not operable. Um, it has extended at such a size because of the size of the tumors in it. So we had to wait to see if there was treatment we had to wait to see if the treatment would work. We had to wait to see when the treatment would start. We waited seven months for the results of the chemo to see if they reduced the tumors to a stage that they could at least operate on the liver. Stuart got on to a trial treatment that was risky, uncertain, um, but had some good results. It punctured his, one of his main arteries in the first attempt. So the second attempt, we didn't know if it was going to happen. We had to wait as Stuart came out of an operation where 60% of his liver was removed. We had to wait to see if his colon would function after 10, 10 inches or 10 centimeters of that was removed. And we had to wait to see if the swollen lymph glands and the biopsies of them actually proved that he was cancer free. 
I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Have courage and wait. I have to say that daily we were impatient. We had raised hopes and dashed hopes. There was lots of tears. There was lot, my brother was angry at different points of this. But we kept seeing God's goodness in many dark days. So many people praying for us from here to England, the rest of Britain, Ireland, Australia, the Philippines, Uganda, Mozambique, right across the world. The church that Stuart and Elizabeth went to becoming their family because we couldn't be present all the time, taking the meals, looking after the children, taking Elizabeth to hospital, visiting Stuart. We saw a village that they belonged to opening up their homes and we saw people from other faiths saying, we'll be saying a prayer for your brother. We saw Stuart, who wasn't the only member in the church to have cancer, actually have companionship in the church with people who were suffering from cancer. And he would say that that was one of the great things because he never felt alone. We saw Stuart's employers, after six months not having his wages, but deciding to pay him another full six months in full pay. And we saw medical staff give of themselves. And we know that Stuart was sick in the right place because he was never more than half an hour from any of the treatment that he was receiving. We saw a family of four become much closer together in Jesus Christ. And we saw a 14-year-old hold his nine-year-old sister and comforting her. And we have seen the goodness of the Lord. And at the beginning, at the end of January this year, my brother was declared cancer-free. I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Have courage and wait on the Lord. It is a sacrifice to declare God's goodness. But there is great comfort that comes from it. And we certainly as a family have felt that. We have been strengthened by his spirit. And we know that we were in a battle. And we continue to be because he still has to have treat, uh, scanned every two months to see that he continues to be cancer free. We have our father now who has also got cancer and get and receiving treatment. But we believe in the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Have courage and wait upon the Lord. <laughs>